Welcome one and all to season five of Horror Palooza, the horror podcast that is calling from inside the house. Holy shit, we're back. My name is Sir Ian Dangerous, a.k.a. your Uncle Frank, and you can find me on Twitter at Skinless Wonder and on IG at Sir Ian Dangerous. For those of you who are just finding us, welcome, welcome. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to everyone who's come on on back and listened to our previous seasons. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what it is. It is the most wonderful time of the year. That's right. It's October, which of course means I'm high as fuck on all the sugar from a Starbucks apple crisp macchiato. I've got my cinnamon candles going. The misfits are playing. And my dog is dressed up like Jason Voorhees. Okay, that last part's a lie. He's actually dressed up like Cujo. At least I hope that's toothpaste in his mouth. Down boy, down boy. Okay, so if you're new to the show, I do a little thing every year where I watch 31 horror movies in October, one for every day of the month. I watch them, I write about them, and then I come here and talk about them, and I let you all know what I thought. But that is not all. I can't just watch any horror movies. I have a set of rules I have to follow. Otherwise, Sam Raimi shows up on my doorstep and he drags me to hell. I made these rules because it would be too easy to watch the same old horror films year after year. The genre is huge, and there are so many movies that slip through the cracks year after year, and there's nothing better than discovering some hidden treasures in my marathon. So I made up some rules that would force me to branch out, and hopefully we can all discover some cool new horror together. So here are the rules. There's no film that I've watched in the last five years. Not allowed. I, I usually say no film I've watched before, but at least the last five years, no film that I've seen basically since Palooza began. Uh, I have to have at least three movies that are in another language besides English, at least three foreign films, subtitles and all. I have to have at least two films from every decade, from the pre-1940s to the present. In other words, 40s and before counts as one decade, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, etc., etc., etc. Now, I used to do one film from every decade, but that was too easy. So I got to make it hard on myself and do two from every decade. Uh, multiple films from the same franchise count as one movie, so I can't watch Chucky 1 through 6 and count it as six movies. That's, that's, that counts as one. They have to be, I mean, this, this might be obvious, but they have to be horror movies. Okay, I've got to be able to defend it as being a horror movie if it might be on the fence. We don't know. I've got to be able to explain why I think it's a horror movie. And number six, the final rule, the bonus rule, the special rule this year is I have to watch at least one folk horror film from each decade. Now, that can count as my was one of my two from each decade, but it has to be a folk horror film, or at least I need to explain why I think it has something to do with the folk horror genre. Now, what is folk horror, you ask? Well, I actually hope to answer that over the next four weeks. Basically, it's a genre that has existed in some form since movies began, but only really became codified in like the 1960s and onward with movies like Blood on Satan's Claw, The Wicker Man, etc. Now, only recently... Has it become a truly recognized subgenre 
within the last eh, 10 years especially being a watershed time when dozens of modern folk horror films have been produced. Films like uh, Robert Eggers' The Witch, David Bruckner's The Ritual, Ari Aster's Midsummer. Earlier than that, you got films like Children of the Corn, Pumpkinhead, Sleepy Hollow. Uh, even films about urban legends or, or ghost hauntings can fit the genre. Uh, movies like Candyman, Rawhead Rex, even Poltergeist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre counts. The idea is that there is a genre of horror that expresses a struggle between society and nature, although this can express itself in a conflict between city folk and rural, fo rural folk, or between indigenous people and colonizers, or between differing points of view on religion, between uh, civilized and, let's say, savage religions. Oftentimes, that means Christianity versus paganism, but it can be between any conflicting religion, or lack thereof, as long as one is expressed to be of the people who are closer to nature than the others. Uh, the landscape itself often plays a part in these films, and it's usually argued that nature itself plays a role in these films as a, as a tangible part of the world. So there's a lot more nuance to the concept than this, and, and that's really what I hope to explore this year with at least nine folk horror films from nine different decades. And I look forward to exploring these movies with all of you. So every show, I will be going over a week's worth of movies and talking about them except for the last show of the season. That's going to be a nice big one, 10 whole movies. So the question is, are they worth watching? What did they do right? What did they do wrong? Are there any explosions? That being said, I do try to keep spoilers to a minimum, but I do like to go into horror movies totally blind myself, and there may be some light spoilers for these movies in the show. So if you like to go into these movies totally blind, then beware. I'll warn you, but just... Be careful. If I talk about anything I don't think would be showable in a trailer for one of these movies, I'll warn you first. In other words, I won't spoil twists or big reveals. I might discuss how I felt about an ending, but I won't spoil what happened. So, you have been warned. Light spoilers may be ahead. So, again, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. Let me know if I'm way off base on these opinions or if you think I'm spot on or if I found an awesome film you've never heard of but are glad to have seen. Once again, that's Skinless Wonder on Twitter and Sir Ian Dangerous on Instagram. And of course, I'd like to once again thank my musical contributors, the Tiki Creeps and 414 Beg. They are both on iTunes. And the Tiki Creeps are at tikicreeps.com. 414 Beg is on Instagram. And of course, if you haven't yet, please hit subscribe to Horror Palooza on your podcast app of choice. Hit that little subscribe button, leave a review, a rating. It helps me a lot. Share me with your friends, please. Thank you very much. And without any further ado, let's talk about some horror movies. So we start off this year with one of the granddaddies of folk horror, Witchfinder General, a.k.a. The Conqueror Worm from 1968, which I have sitting right over there on a Blu-ray. Now, one of the icons of horror is Vincent Price, who had a long and lurid history of playing arch, campy, spine-tingling roles in thriller after thriller. But the character he played, which he felt was the bloodthirstiest, was, the, was Matthew Hopkins, the self-proclaimed Witchfinder General of England during its bloody first civil war in the mid-1600s. And that's the character he plays here in this film. Now, you might also see this listed as the Conqueror Worm, as I said, a name slapped on the film by its production company, American International Pictures, or AIP, after a string of successful Edgar Allan Poe films by Roger Corman and also starring Vincent Price. Although, this movie only has 
thematical relations to that poem in that it is much about madness and more of sin and horror, the soul of the plot. But mostly, it's about the very real Matthew Hopkins, who, along with his cohort John Stern, left a trail of death and horror in his wake as he acted as representative of the law to the small towns of eastern England. He was trying and killing witches in a time of social unrest and general lawlessness. And at one point in the film, a character says, a lack of order in the land encourages strange ideas. And this no doubt resonated with the audiences of the time, caught up as they were in the Vietnam War, the cultural revolution, the the dissolution of a moral order in Western society that only a few years before had felt like they had come to a pinnacle of history. Suffice it to say that this film still resonates today. Sound familiar? Which may be why we're seeing a resurgence of the subgenre that this film helped to define. Now, folk horror often relies on pastoral or rural settings and the juxtaposition between the seeming peacefulness of the landscape and the darkness and violence that occurs therein. And this film opens on a perfect example of this with a beautiful setting of innocent sheep grazing in a field intercut with a screaming woman being dragged up a hill, beaten, and brutally hung for being a witch. Religious fervor is also often a staple in folk horror, and this film illustrates the fanaticism of the populace before it introduces us to Price's slimy, self-righteous, hypocritical piece-of-shit Hopkins, whose refined demeanor contrasts with Robert Russell's Stern, who we quickly deduce is nothing more than a savage, torture-loving brute, though also quite wily in his own way. The two are classic villains and are utterly terrifying as the film plays on uh, and we come to understand the the amount of unchecked power these two unscrupulous scumbags are privy to and how much they're willing to abuse it the plot centers more on richard marshall our our protagonist played by ian ogilvy who's he's a humble soldier in cromwell's round hat army nice to see some cromwell boys being portrayed as being good dudes it's interesting take And he arranges to take his betrothed Sarah away from the countryside, but not before good old Vinnie Price shows up to assist the villagers who accuse her uncle of idolatry and witchcraft, all because they thought he was a papist. And a domino effect of violence and retribution takes place, which takes us through torture, rape, drownings, burnings, and death by being hacked repeatedly with an axe. Now, the mightily abused Sarah, played by Hillary Dwyer, and more, I gotta say, hold on, more brutally abused here than most women in contemporary revenge films. They treat her like crap in this film. Uh, and then her doomed uncle is played by Rupert Davies. They are outcast in their own village, as it were. And the film tells us this. And Witchfinder General, the film, focuses on the ideas of hysteria and mob violence caused by superstitions and religious fervor being stoked by power-hungry, hypocritical madmen, but also on the evils in the average man's heart. Children are seen cooking potatoes, for example, in the ashes of burned witches, which is a chilling scene. And by the way, the big witch-burning scene in the film is intense. It's not as brutal as Silent Hills, but it's a definite forebear. And Ogilvy's Marshall is a hero through and through, decorated as the movie goes on for a service in Cromwell's army, with even a, a cameo from the old Lord Protector himself back when he was a field general. But by the end, we see that even he can be corrupted in times of strife. And the final line of the film, may God have mercy on us all, is just mwah, perfection. It sums it all up 
and leaves us on that chilling nihilistic note that the movie needs. It's perfect as a way to sum up the themes of this movie because while the film is lurid and cartoonish in some ways and certainly not always historically accurate, it sometimes plays like a, a 60s-era torture porn with this dalliance on the violence, which, which I mean, what they're showing was brutal for the time. Uh, this movie's nihilistic and cold-hearted view of humanity that surrounds the central love story, which gives the movie this vicious, serious heart, it's one that's very much at home with the utter bleakness of the Poe the po poem that AIP, they, they, they named it for, The Conqueror Worm. It fits in perfectly with that. Now, it's not to say the movie's a chore to watch, uh, it's actually wildly entertaining, despite being dark as hell. Price is actually surprisingly understated here, apparently due to director Michael Reeves, who also directed The Sorcerers and Castle, uh, Castle of the Living Dead. He, so Michael Reeves wanted Donald Pleasance for this role instead, but being forced by his production company to take on Price, uh, as a result, the two apparently fought a lot on set. Reeves trying to get Price to act a certain way, but meeting resistance, not knowing how to tell him how to do that. And actually, when Price saw the film, he wrote a long letter apologizing to Reeves and said, had he known what the director had wanted, he would have given it to him. And it actually ended up being one of his favorite performances of all time. And Reeves apparently responded, I told you so, and then passed away a month later from an alcohol and barbiturate overdose while attempting to secure funding for his filming of the Oblong Box. But that performance of Price's, without his usual scene-shoeing, is chilling. He's utterly menacing here, and it makes the horrible things he does seem even more despicable. You, you hate him in this movie, and usually, when I watch a Price movie, and he's unrepentantly evil, I kind of go, a <laughs> cackle, and you root for him a little bit. Ooh, new, no, new, no, not here. Here he actually made me angry. And even though I knew in real history the character died in his bed years later, I really hoped he would get his comeuppance in the film. And you, you feel this through, through Ogilvy's excellent performance as the protagonist who spends a lot of the movie hunting Price down like a lawman chasing down an outlaw in an old western. And this film actually gets compared to westerns a lot. Uh, you got lawless times, civil war, open fields through which we get thrilling horseback chases. Oh, and, and by the way, Ogilvy can ride a damn horse. He is one of the best natural riders I've ever seen in film. He's up there with Toshiro Mifune. This guy rides a damn horse. Uh, there's a populace that doesn't care about the bigger issues going on in the country. They're only, only looking out for their own self-interest. It's very westernish. It could easily have been transposed to being a Western. It's fascinating to see all of these tropes clashing together. And I can see why this film is held up as a signpost in the history of genre films. As far as folk horror, its major contributions are its gorgeous shots of the English countryside as, as a scene setting for these acts of violence and depravity that make one question humanity's place in the world. Uh, the beauty of nature is enveloping and circumscribing the darkness of man. Now, whereas later folk horror would include actual supernatural occurrences or more emphasis on the clash between the rural and urbanized societies, here the, the superstitions of the townsfolk are shown to be fertile soil for the calculated exploitative plans of those who would take advantage of religious fervor. And the horror comes from realizing just how easy it is for one human to turn against another when folk tales and simple beliefs are manipulated and taken advantage of. I can see 
why this is held up as one of the unholy trinity of folk horror along with Wicker Man and Blood on Satan's Claw. It's a major moment in genre filmmaking, a properly disturbing horror movie, and also just a damn fine film. Next up, we had Eyes of Fire from 1983. You can find it on Shudder right now. It's, it's an often ambitious and well-intentioned movie that ultimately it just unfortunately falls short of its goals and its intentions. Eyes of Fire is the kind of movie best described as a curio or a signpost film, one that's best watched to see some creative attempts at supernatural magical horror, but one that ultimately lacks the technical expertise and coherence to pull it all off. The story, much like the movie, is needlessly complex while also being astonishingly simplistic. It's the 1700s America. There is a lascivious, pompous preacher and his ragtag flock who escape from religious persecution and, and, and chasing natives and bandits, and, and they settle in a cursed valley. Unsurprisingly, they then soon find themselves under an unevenly paced onslaught of supernatural attacks and also a plot that completely falls apart while the half-written characters act dramatically and illogically. This culminates in a bizarre showdown that is far more explosions than you would expect for a piece in this period. However, if you like explosions, well, you've got some dandy ones. They just, they just seem wildly anachronistic and atonal. Now, well, I know that sounds simple. The various characters are introduced in a hellbent sort of way, and the whole thing is told in flashback and through voiceover. So thankfully, you have some guidance as you set off, but all of this could have been must, vastly simplified given the, the basic structure here. In addition, the characters that you do have mostly have almost no layers to them, and the ones that do are fairly shallow. You've got the arrogant, slimy priest himself who's played honestly, rather deliciously by Dennis Lipscomb. You've got his lover, the strong but underutilized Rebecca Stanley, her heroic and well-meaning hunter and trapper husband, played with excellent gravitas and presence by Guy Boyd, who I, I couldn't place him until I realized that he was a, a deep-cut memory, and he was the dad in Ewok Caravan of Courage, the, 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 the TV movie that they did, the Ewoks movie. He was the dad in that. He's great. There's a gaggle of children. There's a bunch of irrelevant adults, uh, actually including a young Rob Paulson, better known as the voice of Pinky on Pinky and the Brain. He's in this briefly with a horrible beard. And there's a mostly mute, very weird, redheaded wild child named Leah, who, as the film goes on, gains, I shit you not, whole ass superpowers. Plus, she eats whole handfuls of dirt, which... Between that and having to run around in the cold, buck-ass naked, shows that actress Carlene Crockett, who played her, had some serious commitment to this role. Props to her. And this film definitely takes a turn for the weird about halfway through. There's a literal forest witch that looks like, I shit you not, a trash bag with leaves stuck to it. There's a bunch of naked, mud-covered French people trying to steal children. There's strange dream sequences, magical battles, and, and did I mention random explosions? At one point, the hunter shoots a child. Don't worry, it was the witch or something. I don't, I don't know. It's, it, it's fine. The whole field goes up like it's apocalypse now, and we're about to hear Jim Morrison coming and singing. This is the end. Big, huge explosion. It's bonkers. 
and it's not always in a good way. Characters make wildly illogical decisions or they don't react to shocking events entirely. Sometimes I, I blame the editing, which feels like it's just missing connecting shots, and this may be due to this being writer-director Avery Crowns' first movie. Maybe they just didn't have shots to work with. Uh, he's apparently an acclaimed photographer, although it seems that's mostly due to him having been able to sell some of his photographs rather than him actually being famous for photography. I don't know. I tried to research him, and there's not a lot there. He does have a good eye, though. I'll give him that. Much of the film's visual artistry is serviceable. It's very pretty in places. And I, I don't want it to seem like I hated this movie. There is a lot to like here, despite its many flaws. The performances are adequate to good, as I said. Much of the cinematography is fine. The costumes are actually quite good, even if the makeup and beards and wigs are sometimes slipshod. But the atmosphere is truly this film's strongest point. The film has survived by being a retroactively lauded piece of American folk horror cinema. And I can, I can actually see why. I mean, the cheesy special effects aside, there are numerous very creepy little moments in this film, like when you slowly start realizing some of the trees in the forest have faces on them, or some of the shots of the mist-filled woods of the American wilds. I mean, folk horror, by definition, has an element of the landscape in it. And this film is shot mostly, or perhaps even wholly, on location in the outdoors. And it greatly helps the feeling of nature oppressively surrounding this hapless group of settlers for whom this level of wild is beyond even what they know. There, there is, of course, a theme of the land and the energy in it being older and darker than even these somewhat hardened people can handle and that the, the natives of America have wisdom of such matters that they can only guess at. And a great scene to this end is the hunter telling his daughter the story of why the valley they settled in may be cursed. And he points out that even some Christians, despite their faith, still believe in leprechauns, fairies, etc., pointing out that despite whatever conventional religion may say, there are older truths that can still be truths, a classic trope in folk horror. So Eyes of Fire is certainly a must-watch if you're trying to track some of the history of folk horror. And as that's what I'm trying to do this year, I'm certainly glad I saw it. It firmly falls into the category, and it can be seen as an influence to many films after it, including, including The Witch, Robert Eggers' The Witch, which has a very similar premise and also a similar attention to detail with its period costumes and language. But it's, this is a heavily cautioned recommendation, as it is a deeply flawed movie with some goony effects, incoherent storytelling, and just a, a howler of a climax. Oh, and of course, there's lots of explosions. For day three, I went to uh, Shudder and found Terrified, or Atarados in Spanish. It's a fantastic Argentinian supernatural horror film that's been kicking around Shudder for a minute now. It won Best Picture at Fantastic Fest. It's been well-reviewed everywhere it went. Guillermo del Toro even bought the rights to make a remake in 2018. It's been on my radar for a minute now, but I, I never got around to throwing it on. I did this year, and I am so glad I did. See, one of the downsides to watching as much horror as I do, and maybe some of you all can relate to this, is that I've become pretty jaded to the actual horror or shock in any particular movie. I'm, I'm kind of desensitized to all but the most ingenious jump scares. I don't really get viscerally grossed out, but I'm certainly aware when something is conventionally gross or scary. 
look, what I do still get, however, is something that I call the yo. Something will happen in the film I did not expect, or I get surprised by, or that is so intense or extreme that I, I sit up on my couch, I point at the screen like Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I go, yo! I would say an average good horror movie has at least one yo. Witchfinder General had like one or two minor ones. Eyes of Fire had none. Terrified had at least five. Five really, really good ones. Now, the reason I think Terrified hooked me is the superb direction. Uh, Damien Rudnia wrote and directed this film in a way I can only describe as relaxed malignance, where it feels like he doles out information and camera shots in a manner that is meant to specifically hold back certain aspects of each scene or the overarching story until the perfect time to unleash them upon us, his captive audience. This creates a wonderful tension. We learn early on that he is capable and willing to do anything at any time, regardless of the beats and rhythms we've come to expect from genre movies. And as a result, we're always off kilter and suspicious of what he's going to do next. And oftentimes, we really have no idea where he's going, and he wants to fuck us up. Now, this uncomfortable feeling of uncertainty is underlined by the fact that he switches protagonists on us multiple times, and that unlike in many of these kinds of movies where we're given like the rules of the supernatural forces and then have some sort of framework for the rest of the film, like uh, Freddy can only attack you in dreams or the ghosts only exist inside the fog, Rugna makes it clear again and again and again that there are no rules here. And even the supposed experts who are telling us in the film that the rules, what the rules are, they're completely out of their depth and have no idea what they're talking about. And there's something morbidly funny about that, which is another strength of this movie. It's wonderfully bone-dry funny in a few places, largely coming from the police commissioner Funes, played with all kinds of humanity and a beautiful charm by Maximiliano Chione whose character is so out of his depth the entire film, and he has the most delicious physical mannerisms and perfectly timed line readings to express this while never dipping into camp. I think the best way to describe this film overall, without, without giving anything away, as this is definitely a movie scene completely cold, as cold as possible, it's like if Insidious was made by sadists, instead of Hollywood hacks. I was going to say there's a touch of Toby Hooper's poltergeist, like their ghost hunter scene here, but whereas he made sure the face-destroying scene in that film was all a dream, Terrified doesn't give you that parachute. It's out to get you. There's no Ed Grimley-haired Darth Maul demon hiding in a fantasy Oz world in a seance here, but the promise of the first two-thirds of Insidious is what I'd equate to this movie, to Terrified. Bad supernatural things are happening, they're coming, and they will fuck you up for real. Now, while the very end of this film is a bit of an eye roll, not entirely satisfying, I'll certainly take it over a lot of horror endings I've seen, and I can't really fault it too much after all the wonderful stuff it pulled off to that point. There are even some, some big plot holes, some nasty plot holes, some meandering plot issues, which I overlooked simply because the movie is so strong in other places. I felt compelled to forgive them. To be able to create truly fresh-feeling, surprising horror like this is an accomplishment. And I really do hope that Rudnia's plan to make a Terrified 2 comes to fruition, as there's a lot of ground to tread here. 
This is a fantastic example of the kind of incredible Latin horror we've been seeing surging in the last 10 years. I highly recommend checking it out if you're a fan of supernatural thrills and chills or just a fan of a good yo Seriously, I'm, I'm still shooketh. Uh, up next, we had from 1975, God Told Me To on Shudder. I had heard about this movie from some list that counted down the scariest movies you've never seen. I also, I noted when I looked it up that it was written and directed by Larry Cohen, the maverick madman behind the It's Alive series and The Stuff, which is a great movie. So they had my attention here. It was described as being about a New York detective who is investigating public murders by people who all declare upon their apprehension that, quote, God made them do it. And then he starts to believe that there are supernatural and possibly divine forces at work. That's a damn good combination of concepts, which had me excitedly intrigued for this movie. And so I happily popped it on and sat back with hope in my heart, popcorn in my hand. And first of all, I probably should have realized my my expectations going in might have been too high. Cohen, while undoubtedly a master of cranking out a low-budget movie that punches above its budget, is nonetheless a schlockmeister, and his ineptitude at action sequences is again on display here. I don't know if he was just against storyboarding or didn't get his shots in, but anytime the action picks up in this movie, it's like his editor, Chris Lebenzon, just throws some footage in a blender and hopes it comes out coherent, which it doesn't. It's unfortunate because there are some wonderfully tense buildups to scenes that then should explode into action but instead just fall apart into goony mush that just kills the tension and the story. And it doesn't help that the story, while founded on a very interesting premise, which in some aspects is handled quite deftly, is also as loony by the end as Bugs Bunny. For the first third to maybe half of the runtime, I was pretty invested with the idea that a supernatural force was empowering people to murder publicly in order to raise worship for itself. That's a concept that's just unsettling and sacrilegious enough to make me salivate for the outcome. And then the 70s era New York feel that Cohen is legitimately excellent at capturing is also a treat. I love movies of this era from the likes of Scorsese or Henenlotter that really get the grime of the streets of the Big Apple all over the celluloid. And this movie definitely feels of and in New York. And that to me is a bonus. But then in one scene with a flashback to a naked woman running at a car in the middle of a rainy night, the movie goes flying off the rails into ridiculousness, and not only does it never fully recover, it keeps finding more ways to make its promising concept into a science fiction late-night History Channel garbage fire. I can't, I can't lay this at the feet of anyone other than Cohen, too. It's, it's his party. He wrote and directed this, and he certainly had a cast ready and able to do whatever he needed. Tony LoBianco, who, is, who plays our lead, is a fine actor. He's had an enviable career playing cops and mobsters. He feels like a cross between De Niro and Robert Forrester, who Robert Forrester actually ironically quit this film after a couple of days, which let, left the door open for Bianco. And like in many of Cohen's films, the male lead is well-written. He's brash. He's capable. He's beloved by the ladies. Basically, you get the feeling it's a projection of Cohen's own not entirely incorrect self-image. And Lo Bianco is engaging, and he's interesting to watch, and he handles some goofy lines and situations with aplomb, totally capably. And the supporting cast, they're, mm, they're a bit more haphazard, so some turning in some really crisp, 
professional performances, some seemingly straight out of a high school play, but no one's really egregiously terrible. And there's even a, a blink-and-you'll-miss-it cameo from Andy Kaufman in his first credited screen role as a cop who decides to open fire in the middle of a packed parade. Uh, most notably, Sylvia Sidney, who was a screen icon decades before this movie came out and a director's darling for decades after, uh, Tim Burton, Famously cast her as Juno, the caseworker in Beetlejuice, uh, Slim Pickens, Loving Grandma, Florence and Mars Attacks, for example. Well, here, she has an absolutely amazing scene where she starts off being essentially a vehicle for exposition of a major plot twist, but she ends up breaking down spectacularly in the single best-performed, written, and directed moment of the film. It's amazing. But... All of this does not save God Told Me To from its downsides, and there are many. I, I can't go into all the ways this movie falls apart without massive spoilers, so I'll simply say that the plot devolves into ridiculous gobbledygook, gobbledygook that can't even pay off its own ridiculousness. The way, the way it chooses to get out of the quandary of, is this actually God commanding these people, might have been more novel in the 70s, but it's rather old hat now. And even taken at face value for the time, the explanation, if you want to call it that, left more plot holeish questions and face-palmingly stupid situations in its wake than a satisfying mystery. And the basic idea is a it's tough subject matter, too, given the current rash of gun-related rampages here in the U.S. The scenes of a person with a gun terrorizing civilians at will is uncomfortable. Until you realize that they're doing it in this film, with single-shot rifles or pistols. Now imagine if this movie was remade now. It, it takes a bit of self-control to get into the mindset that the rampages in this film would be as horrifying as they are, given the relative escalation of this kind of violence in the years since, and especially since this film doesn't dwell on the populace's response as much as perhaps it should, relying instead on the assumption that the audience would be horrified enough seeing this kind of scenario play out. It's very of its time. Um, I mean, if you throw in the added twist of it being possibly divinely inspired, and well, that could still play today, that concept and raise chills, but really, the challenging of religious authority and spiritual doctrine rings more hollow these days than perhaps before, as many other treatises on the possible alternate explanations for Western Judeo-Christian beliefs have been made better and more incisively in years since. Now, there's a movie to be made that challenges the ideas of faith, human evolution, society, organized religion, incoherent, uh, inherent benevolence, Higher powers, innate violence, generational trauma, our place in the universe. Uh, the, you know, this, this is not that movie. Instead, this is a C-level effort made by a man who I believe is smarter than this. And he seems to have outsmarted himself here. And finally, perhaps most damning for this show, it's not even that scary. Like, not even the, oh yeah, I see why it freaked out audiences back then, but it's not so bad now sense. Like, like the Changeling or the Sentinel or Phantasm. It has one, maybe two actually intense scenes, and the most frightening one being when Bianco is jumped by a knife-wielding woman in a dark hallway. I don't, I don't know who put this on a list of scary movies, but if you did, you should be fired. Either that, or it's someone who is afraid of David Bowie-looking hippie messiahs, chest vaginas, Harlem pimps, inept old Illuminati white dudes, or random shootings, which, okay, fair on that last one. But yeah, God, God told me to is not scary. It's not that smart. It's not that good. I hate to play the devil's advocate for those of you who champion this movie, but well, Satan told me to. So there you go. Up next, we have Barbarian, which is currently playing in theaters right now as of the recording of this episode. And uh, 
man, this is going to be a tough one to review because I wanted to love it so much. There is so much good with this movie. Barbarian is fantastically entertaining uh, with a great cast, some incredible scares, a phenomenal score that morphs, morphs radically to fit the mood, some truly laugh out loud moments of fantastic comedy, some nail biting tension, some amazing hard cuts that will punch you right in the guts. It's beautifully shot. It's paced in ways that will fuck your expectations of what comes next. But ultimately, it just falls flat at its close. And it's missing that fifth gear to clock into in its last 20 minutes. And that's the only thing keeping this movie from being a classic. It is set up and executed beautifully, but loses itself badly by the end when it runs out of ideas. And it's not like the basic premise of the film is all that complex to begin with. I went into it absolutely completely cold. I knew it was I knew only that it was about a weird Airbnb. I saw no trailers, no press for it, nothing. That's all I recommend anyone go into it with. That's it. I mean, even this review might be too much, so be warned. I will try to keep it spoiler light, but really, it's great when you know as little as possible about this movie. The casting the pacing, the way the filmmakers dole out information and how they sometimes brutally jump to other storylines is best experienced as completely blind as possible with no idea who is doing what and why. And I've also heard this referred to as best experienced in a crowded theater, a social film, and I can see that. There's a lot in this movie that would set a lively crowd to roaring or squealing, which sadly was not my experience. I saw it in a, a small theater with maybe six other people in it, and it was a very quiet affair, aside from a few moments that had my friend and I howling quietly in our seats. But when we left, we both looked at each other with a bit of an unsettled feeling. Neither of us were completely satisfied. And I saw it with 414 Beg. He's a huge horror guy, and we just, ew, we just didn't feel like we got our cookies. Now, granted, both he and I are grumpy-ass, jaded horror heads, so maybe we had too high of expectations. Maybe we watched... Too many French New Extreme films back in the day, and this didn't just didn't come close in terms of brutality or severity. And frankly, there are a couple of those mid two thousands films I could directly draw a line to from this. But after some consideration, I truly do believe this movie fell short of what it could have been in terms of power and intensity due to its lack of commitment and concepts in the third act. Even a recent film which bears some similarities, 2016's Don't Breathe, which shares a setting and some conceptual themes, had a third act that, for lack of a better phrase, went there. And again, without spoiling, Barbarian ends on an incredibly savage credit cut, which, in theory, I'm not against, see Witchfinder General, but here it feels too abrupt. And even some mid-credit denouement scenes just add to the feeling of deflation. After all the build the movie gives us up to that point, the climax feels too sudden, too forced, unearned, and over too quickly and too decisively. And that's not to say the movie's a failure, because it most certainly is not. As I said, the tension ratcheting up to the ending is spectacular. The first two-thirds of the movie give us several scenes of absolute seat-clawing suspense and anxiety, and it subverts expectations several times to wonderfully surprising effects. The cast is utterly fantastic, and I hate to even say who's in it, as I was surprised by some of the actors in the film and realized after the movie ended, even the casting had been weaponized against us to make us come to conclusions and assumptions, which created tension 
where there otherwise might have been less. There's also an incredible understanding here of the female gaze, or rather, the experience a woman has on a daily basis in relation to her own safety, how she perceives, how she is perceived. That's a theme throughout the film. And the casual ways that men can go through situations that would rightfully cause a woman warning signs to go off and how the movie shows us these warning signals and lets us into that world, it's subtle, it's brilliant. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, there's also a, a pointed stab at Me Too men, the bros who think that they are they are good guys and don't understand why women are upset at them and have no accountability or awareness of their own actions or culpability. I, I don't think I've seen a dissection or portrayal of that kind of guy as spot on since A Promising Young Woman. And while that film ultimately gives into preachiness and rage over its subjects, this film just lets the character play out and then gives us a satisfying bit of cathartic retribution before moving on. And sadly, that's one of the best outcomes in this movie since it sets up its premise in the late second act, gives us a bit more into that, like a bit more info at the beginning of the third act, but then never goes further beyond that. The antagonists are revealed and they never grow. And we don't find out any new information, even from a Dr. Exposition character deep in the third act. There's nothing deep or intriguing beyond the basic setup. And while there doesn't always need to be, the fact that this film so cleanly and neatly wraps everything up so quickly is a major disappointment. My, fr my friend and I, 414 Beg and I, spend the entire ride home thinking of all the ways, both grandiose and even quite simple, like, like one shot simple, that they could have expanded the end of the film to feel bigger, scarier, more crazy, a fifth gear, something. And, and maybe that wasn't the intention of the filmmaker, writer, director, and former talent for sketch comedy troupe The Whitest Kids You Know, Zach Kreger, for whom this is his first foray into horror. Maybe it was the first film Stumbles, where he had the first act polished, but didn't have the gas to power the finale. Or maybe it is exactly as intended, and he wanted to have an ending that just flopped in the audience's laps and laid there so that we could just sit back and go, oh, well, okay, I guess that's it. Which would be a shame if that was the intention because there's so much else here that is wonderful. But sadly, a flat finish can really mess up a good film. And for me, as good as Barbarian was, it had a flat finish. And at the end of the day, that bad taste that it left in my mouth is the one that I still have, which sucks because I wanted to like it so much more. So on my sixth day, I watched The Undying Monster from 1942, which I've got over here on Blu-ray. And we're going all the way back to a werewolf film. Uh, Undying Monster is definitely a B-movie through and through. It's got overcooked scenarios, hammy acting, uh, snappy dialogue to spare. But it, it was my attempt to trace some of the early roots of folk horror tropes due to its rural setting its reliance on local legends and a sense of impending doom from a creature which, in some sense, represents nature. Now, unfortunately, while it does have some to all of these concepts, the way that they're executed precludes any ability to call this a foundational folk horror film due to very specific aspects which counter the nature of a true folk horror film as they've come to be defined. Uh, the plot is about a curse which hangs over the Hammond family, a wealthy English family in which the members of the family are fated to be attacked on a cold night by a monster on a rocky lane near the family estate. Ooh. The film opens with some great shots of this Oceanside mansion, nice and creepy, establishing the landscape right away, but it quickly cutting to a stunning uncut quick pan shot of the interior of the mansion, showing us that there is a lot of old history here and that it is a classic creepy old house. 
And one of the film's strong points is the cinematography. It's great, as in this establishing shot and its brisk, brisk pace, and we are just quickly flung into the action. Everyone moves and talks with urgency. They're wonderfully more alive than many films of this era. And while it does drag a bit in the middle, overall, it's a breezy, easy watch. The heroine, played by Heather Angel, who at this point was a fairly established actress, is extremely plucky and capable, and she shows us this right away when she grabs a pistol and organizes and leads a search party to find her brother, who they think may have been attacked by the monster. It's an engaging and exciting opening, even peppered as it is by the butler playing Captain Exposition and telling us all the superstitions surrounding the house and family and its doomed history, etc., etc. But as the film continues, we are introduced to the wildly miscast James Ellison from I Walked with a Zombie, for example. He's a, he's a Scotland Yard inspector with a brutally American accent, and his goofy assistant, Christy, who has a wonderfully English accent. She's played with oblivious chirpiness by Heather Thatcher. Look, I can, uh, I can see why Cecil B. DeMille didn't like Ellison as a performer, although I suppose he's fine for this kind of broader fare, but surrounding him with proper British actors is like a 1940s version of Kevin Costner as Robin Hood in Prince of Thieves. He's obnoxious. He's clumsy. He ruins a few scenes he's in with his broad acting that seems better suited for the swaggering westerns that he's more known for. Regardless, like I said, the movie clips along nicely. It ends up being a solid, watchable werewolf film, not doing anything new visually with the monster, but certainly adding more of a Hound of the Baskerville-style local mythos to the traditional formula. It's almost actually more of a mystery film with bits of procedural thrown in. And like in that Sherlock Holmes story, it's almost disappointing when we get to the end and find out that the the movie was actually more invested in making itself a rational, science-based detective story than an actual supernatural monster movie. But still, despite its best effort to buck the monster movie trends, it's a bit of a ham-fisted and eye-rolling bit of work. It's In trying so hard to not be what we expect, it's almost a letdown. But I, I came to this movie searching for early folk horror tropes, and while I found some interesting alternative takes on the werewolf and detective fiction tropes and was entertained by them, I, I didn't find much of what I was looking for. Not to say... Not to say I found nothing, though. There are some elements that I could argue do have a passing similarity to what has become established as modern folk horror or or even the movies that a decade later would set the proper groundwork for the English golden age of folk horror. And it's certainly more so than any many of the other Hollywood horror films of this era. I mean, you do have city folk coming to the sticks to investigate something that the local townsfolk have a legend about. While the townsfolk have varying degrees of hostility to the interlopers, it's not their primary function. The landscape and nature, which also usually play a major role in folk horror, aren't specifically framed as being antagonistic or confining. They're just a bit creepy. They're there as background, deep background. The misty cliffs, uh, cliffs and dark, rocky walkways, aren't. they're not a character per se, and they aren't oppressive beyond simply aesthetically, though... I guess an argument could be made for the atmosphere being a framing for larger sinister concepts, but it's it's loose. The, the local legend is only ever mentioned by the main characters. We don't get a true sense of the common folk, as the main characters are all aristocratic or from the city. And the common folk we deal with don't have much interaction with the protagonists. This means we're only dealing with a certain class of people, and folk horror thrives on the clash between classes, on the contrast of traditions and beliefs that exist 
between the two. We, we do see clashes between members of the upper class over jurisdictions and secrets, and at one point between the servants and Ellison, but it's, it's never with the desired effect that you would have in later films where those conflicts would be more of the thematic point. There's no clash of religious ideology. There's not a feeling of the city folk being in some sort of peril from the locals. And, and by the somewhat silly end of the movie, we realize that the point of the whole exercise was more to keep the audience guessing as to who the bad guy is than to say anything meaningful about legends, haunted pasts, the pastoral darkness in rural England, or even repressed generational trauma uh, besides a family-sorted past, which by the end is more of a plot point than an emotionally poignant theme. It's there. It's not really there. So ultimately, if I let go of the full core aspect, it's a fine movie for its time. It's certainly entertaining. It's watchable, but nothing too monumental or earth-shaking. Um, disappointingly, it spends too much time with Ellison's abrasive inspector and not enough with Heather Angel, who was a far more intriguing character. And by the end, she's reduced to nothing more than a damsel in distress who we don't even get a proper conclusion for. And the monster, when we finally do see it, is nothing special, although the transformation scene is pretty decent for the time, I guess. At the end of the day, if you like classic horror... It's definitely worth a watch for its technical merits, the fact that it's a, a lesser-seen piece of history that deserves to be remembered, but if you're looking for something with a bit more meat on its bones, you can certainly do better than Undying Monster. Okay, so, here we go. The next film I watched on day seven was Hellraiser from 2022. It just came out on Hulu. Ah. <sighs> Uh, strap in. <laughs> of all the franchises, of all the horror villains, of all of the dark, disturbing worlds put on film, Pinhead and the Hellraiser franchise has always been one of the nearest and dearest to my heart. If you couldn't tell by the fact that one of my nicknames and, and favorite Halloween costumes as well is Uncle fucking Frank. But the problem with the franchise always has been there's there's only like four hours of good footage out of the whole 10 movie series. That is the worst good footage to total runtime out of any franchise. Even worse than the usually awful Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. And every time a new Hellraiser comes out, I have been... I've become numbed to be prepared for utter crap. Usually, it's convoluted claptrap where the complex ideas Clive Barker and company started with are boiled down to simplified Western Judeo-Christian tropes, terrible scripts and acting, mediocre special effects, and little to no originality to speak of. And at this point, the franchise was only being remade so that the Weinstein Company wouldn't lose the rights. And the last six films were all released straight to video or, or streaming, as it were. So, ugh, imagine my trepidation when I heard that there was a new Hellraiser coming out. A hard reboot. No Doug Bradley as Pinhead, though I felt that might have been for the best, as even though Paul T. Taylor and Stephen Smith Collins didn't live up to the original in their last two sequels, it, it was indeed time to move on from Bradley due to his age and his appearance doesn't really befit the character anymore. It's It was time to move on. Clive Barker was going to be involved in this remake, I, I heard, but 
that didn't really give me the highest hopes either. Uh, as as Barker, as brilliant as he is, his wildly hit and miss with his concepts, in my opinion. I, I thought the Scarlet Gospels was a horrifying misstep for all of his characters, akin to Anne Rice having Lestat meet God in her later vampire novels. I thought that the Hellbound Heart was a fantastic start, but where he went in his novels from there was just, was terrible. So then I heard the ritual director, David Bruckner, was helming, and that his writing team that gave us his The Night House had done the script. Now granted, this was after 14 years of Barker and a various host of directors and writers had tried to get the film made, all while crappier and crappier sequels were being pumped out. But I guess producer David Goyer, who also wrote the basic story for this movie, he's got that Hollywood clout now, because sure enough, this configuration of talent finally got the film made with a brand new pinhead played by Netflix's Sense8's Jamie Clayton and a new take on the mythos and the characters based on, but not beholden to, the original novella, The Hellbound Heart. So I was beyond trepidatious, but also pretty intrigued and a little hopeful. So Bruckner's Ritual is... It's, I think it's one of the best horror films of the last 10 years. It's creepy in all the right ways. It's utterly jaw-dropping by the end with the lore and the creature effects. And for the sake of this year's theme of folk horror, an excellent, it's an excellent addition to the genre. Uh, Nighthouse, I think, is a brilliant film that couldn't quite stick the landing. And I reviewed it last year. But it certainly shows that Bruckner is a smart, careful director with a hell of an eye, a talent for getting great amazing performances out of his actors so off the top i was crossing my fingers that those talents were on display here i thought the idea of casting clayton who is a trans actress with a great presence was inspired as it it would hew a lot closer to the original description of the hell priest that would come to colloquially be known as pinhead barker described it as having a feminine voice and being asexual in, in appearance Definitely not what we got with the very masculine, authoritative performance by Bradley, who even had his voice deepened in the audio track to sound more intimidating. So I, I was I was ready. I was into it. The pieces sounded like they were fitting together nicely. And I became even more hopeful after seeing, seeing the trailer. Clayton looked like she nailed it. The early visuals seemed nice. The tone felt right. It looked like a proper director with a bit of a budget, had finally got his fingers into the franchise. And I started to believe it was possible that we might finally get a proper sequel or rather another film that could be actually enjoyed using the concepts that the original had laid out. I sat down yesterday on the day the film premiered on Hulu, not not really wanting to press play because I didn't want to be disappointed as I'd been there before. I, I, I wanted a fresh new take on the ideas, but while also keeping the core concepts that made Hellraiser originally so engaging and cool. And look, it's not necessarily just, oh, it's about, it's about interdimensional sadomasochistic entities. That's the basic trappings of the plot, but the original Hellraiser didn't even really use the Cenobites as villains. They were more like tools or weather events, and it was evil stepmom Julia and the utterly amoral Frank who were the villains in that film. Toxic family dynamics, human selfishness, those were central themes. 
the struggle between the generations, the relative nature of pleasure were concepts explored as well, but the real meat was the deeper thoughts, the deeper ideas, the idea of a puzzle that once solved ostensibly grants your desires for sensations undreamed of by humans, but really just causes you to be torn to shreds and tortured endlessly as a way to experience those higher sensations because the creatures that do it think that's what pleasure is. Someone else's idea of pleasure might not be your own. That's horrifying and intriguing, a concept that Clive Barker came up with while he was working as a male prostitute when he was young, which adds another layer of kind of disturbing sensuality to it. These creatures, so the Cenobites, they enforce this process. They're so beyond the limits of mortality and morality that they have mutilated their own bodies in ways that are sacramental and ornate, acting as emissaries for a higher power, which is unknowable and incomprehensible. They're working towards ends we can't understand. There's something that is grounded but also ephemeral about that. And, and, and this dips a little bit into the lore of the second film where we're introduced to Leviathan, the Cenobite's deity, an impossibly huge geometric shape like a rhombus that floats above a cold, dead, endless labyrinth in a dimension that is all too easily misinterpreted as hell. That's a lot of big, heavy concepts, and the comics expanded on Leviathan's concept to be a god of order who decides that the chaos of life must be broken to its will. But I, I always found that too simplistic. And the second film allowing Leviathan to be controlled and manipulated by the Le Marchand puzzle box also left a bad taste in my mouth, like if Cthulhu were able to be put to sleep by a child's flute or something. Speaking of Cthulhu, I know the concept of Lovecraftian horror is somewhat overdone these days, but I always found his horror to be the most chilling. Eldritch gods who are so beyond our understanding that to comprehend them, would, to call, would be to cause us to go mad, if, to, to rise out of our little ant-like world would leave us broken mentally, spiritually, emotionally. For, for, uh, it, it, once an ant is allowed to see uh, cars and computers and spacecraft, even if its little ant brain is able to grasp even the slightest inkling of what these things are for and why they exist, how can it go back to its little ant world ever again? And, and meanwhile, it knows now that there are entities which control these things that could wipe it from existence without even realizing or caring that it were there. And, and if they do notice it's there, what would they do to it? What would we do to an ant? We could supply it with an endless lifetime of food, I suppose, if it was our whim. Or we could obliterate it in its entire world while barely trying. Now... What if we're the ants to something else? That, that concept has always hit me so hard, and Hellraiser, at its best, touches on that fear. At its worst, Hellraiser gets bogged down by Western Judeo-Christian dualism. I know I've mentioned that a lot this episode, but it, it's popping up a lot. Anytime the labyrinth is referred to as literal hell, I roll my eyes. Clive Barker, writing in Scarlet Gospels, that Pinhead steals Lucifer's armor off his dead corpse, which then resurrects and fights Pinhead, it almost had me throwing the book across the room. It was like incredibly bad Reddit fan fiction. 
The later film sequels, where Pinhead becomes an arbiter of human morality and in any way interested in the concept of sin, just makes me go, ugh. One of the core fascinating concepts about the Cenobites is their amorality and their fascination with how humans work. They can't quite wrap their... They, they understand us, but not really. Seeing humans as cattle at worst or playthings at best or even in an ideal world. Fascinating little creatures that are fun to pick apart but have amusing points of view on existence and experience that the Cenobites never grow tired of trifling with. That's far more terrifying. They're agents of a Satan analog or they're former humans who have just gone too far in search of sensation. I was never a fan of the reveal that Pinhead was a World War I soldier. As much as the idea is intriguing, it depowers and demystifies a character who should be alien and inscrutable. And it makes him into a fallible, weak creature who has stumbled into power, like an ant who has learned how to drive a car. Hellraiser works best when the Cenobites are mysterious, shockingly powerful, sadistically playful, and they only exist in the story as forces of nature or, or larger plot devices like, like Cthulhu or Nyarlathotep in, in Lovecraftian fiction. Uh, the Empty Man, which is a fantastic and underseen Lovecraft film from a few years ago, has an incredible example of how a Lovecraftian god should be portrayed. And in the original Hellraiser, and even in some of the comics and later films, there were, there were fleeting moments where this is how the Hellraiser mythos was handled. It was tantalizing. Because all of the different ideas and takes on the property convoluted the aspects I loved and wanted to see more of. And, and if that sounds like an abusive relationship between the, the franchise and me, it was. Because I, I often had to explain that I loved Hellraiser for what it could be rather than what it often was. You had studio executives who wanted Pinhead to be a, a wise-cracking slasher like Freddy or a silent killer like Jason. Remember, remember, how's that for a wake-up call? Ugh, God. You had different writers and directors who had cockamamie ideas of how to write in the Cenobites, even making a movie about an MMORPG about Hellraiser and Pinhead and company where the, the twist was, oh, they're actually real. Ah, fooled you, nerds. Even the supposedly good films, not, 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 not the later ones, but the, the good films, the early ones, had ridiculous stuff I hated. Pinhead, turning back into a human after seeing an old picture of himself as a soldier. Uh, whatever the fuck that stupid skeleton dragon thing was at the end of the first movie. Leviathan, getting depowered because female Lenny from Of Mice and Men twisted the puzzle box's nipples the right way. There's so much bad in the Hellraiser films that it's sometimes hard for me to explain why I love them so much. But it's those nuggets of eldritch horror, the, the beautiful, pure concepts that lie in amongst all of the nonsense that kept me coming back, that, that spurred my imagination and that fueled my fandom for the franchise and what it could be. And all of that to say, to explain that I was really fucking nervous for this new film. I wanted to like it so much. I, I wanted to, it to get right what I felt it had been gotten wrong in so many other movies, even in Clive Barker's own books. I wanted my version of Hellraiser. I wanted my head canon of what the Cenobites were. I wanted my Lovecraftian version of the universe. I wanted my pinhead to be cold, distant, 
arch, brilliant, sinister, uncompromisingly sadistic, incredibly powerful, and most importantly, to have that little twinkle in its eye of how much fun it was to watch humans experience its pleasures and to enjoy being occasionally surprised by their actions and reactions. I wanted Leviathan to be utterly alien, terrifying, truly godlike, all-powerful, and yet distant and austere and utterly uncaring. A true god when in the presence of ants. But most of all, I just wanted the movie to be fucking good. Just, please, can the performances just not suck? Can I have characters I care about? Can the writing not sound like hackneyed bullshit written by an edgy, angsty teenager? Maybe even, God forbid, some deeper meaning or metaphor. Can it look nice? Gory, but not exploitative? Brutal, but not torture porn? Scary, but in a deep, visceral, unsettling way? Not in a cheap jump scare and music sting kind of way? Can I... Can I, can I please just have a Hellraiser film that I can be proud of? It doesn't have to be my Hellraiser film. Can it just be a Hellraiser film I can be proud of? <sighs> so, imagine my surprise when I watched this film and got virtually everything I wanted. Now look, I, I will be the first to admit the new movie isn't perfect. Are there nitpicks? Sure. But how many perfect films are there really? Yes, some of the characters are a little too CWD, Disney pretty, and Gen Z euphoria-ish, but they're also all really well acted. Some, like in the case of the main character, Riley, played by Odessa Azion. Azion? I don't know. They're, she's absolutely outstanding. Riley is a falling-off-the-wagon recovering addict, and... Zion has the strained voice and slouching demeanor that you've seen on anyone you know who has been on some serious benders and spends too much time crying or screaming. She lives a life of drama. She's very raw. She's very real. And the movie needs that for this theme it has of addiction, destroying those you love. That theme is a really fascinating one in the context of the newer lore that the movie brings to the table, which I, I want to avoid deeper talks about. about I, I'll save that for later, uh, uh, another time maybe. I want to avoid it for the sake of spoilers, but suffice it to say that I thought that the idea of someone trying to escape sensation and suffering through these self-harming these through pills, it's a wonderful juxtaposition in a story about creatures which wish to make up experience. They want, they want to make us experience the most exquisite sufferings imaginable. Especially when one of the new twists is the box now cuts people to mark them for sacrifice. You solve an, an element of the box and a knife pops out as opposed to the Cenobites coming for whoever desired to open the box or anyone just in the vicinity of the box. This means that the metaphor for one's addictions harming the ones you love, the ones closest to you, driving away, destroying your family, your friend group, your needs being selfish and ultimately leading to more suffering is a metaphor that clicks in nicely with the arc of the plot with the new and improved Le Marchand Riddle box which I can no longer simply call the lamentfic configuration as this movie establishes that's only one state of the box and that there are others. Um, it's now, in some ways, a weapon, which is a different look at the box, but one that's intriguing in the way that they use it in this movie. And I know the new lore is bound to be controversial. I know there's already a blowback over the seeming simplicity and blandness of the idea that the box is now just cutty cutty stab stab person go bye bye or that it seems too one dimensional to just poke someone 
with the blade and they're toast, regardless of who they are. And while I hear that, I didn't mind, as I think it opens up possibilities in future installments. The movie makes it clear that it isn't even that cut and dry as it's, as it's somewhat shown here. If someone is stabbed, the Cenobites must take someone back. They don't really care who. It's just six sacrifices for the six sides of the box. Six configurations leading to one of six boons. And I think that concept is cool as hell. And it adds a layer of mysticism to the established story. People also have complained the Cenobites are now too clean looking or they're too slow and slasher stalkery and that the final act of the film feels too much like Walking Dead. I counter that the new Cenobites design actually, it kind of turned my stomach and made me queasy. For all the, the, the trappings of the old design being a bit too goth clubby, the new ones feel more ritualistic and religious. The Cenobites aren't dressed in leather anymore or vinyl. They're naked, except for some occasional metal augmentations, and they're all flayed to a truly extreme degree. Skin is twisted and pulled into formations and shapes that mimic liturgical garments or symbols or that mock the nature of the human form. All are in some way mutilated to make them sexless, and most truly seem like their disfigurements are fucking uncomfortable. In particular, the sounds and movement of the new Asphyx Cenobite really skeeved me out. It was like someone turned a Silent Hill monster up to 11 and hit the gas. But they're also beautiful in a disturbing way, like uh, the bodies exhibit in Vegas. There's something about the precision, the scientific precision of their disfigurements that is symmetrically gorgeous. The ornateness of their flayed skin is captivating, and you can see how some of them could be mistaken for dark angels. And I love their movement. For the most part, they move like a procession like monks, which, which they are. They're worshipers of their fucked up God and the act of claiming humans is a worshipful ceremony. And at no point did I think they were as, as powerless as a mere slasher or zombie. The only time our intrepid protagonists get what seems to be a one-up on them, you get the sense that Pinhead is playing along with the game. And even the Cenobite that gets taken advantage of is even honored to have been bested. And to be clear, this is the first time I've actually felt bad calling Pinhead Pinhead. Barker has vocally always hated the name, and in Scarlet Gospels, he specifically mentions that the Hell Priest is also not fond of it either. It was a joke the crew made up on the set of the first Hellraiser, and it stuck, especially once the character was referred to by that name in Hellraiser 3, DJ Cenobite Boogaloo. Now here, the character is obviously the Cenobite in charge, but is only ever referred to as a priest or a priest of Leviathan, uh, which feels more in line with the severity and the serenity that Jamie Clayton plays it with. Clayton, uh, Clayton is an outstanding new pinhead or, or priest, and she plays everything wonderfully small, meaning that she is, for the most part, a blank canvas, but brings so many subtle little nuances that are an absolute joy to behold. Her portrayal is just playful enough to be entertaining while not being campy. It's serious enough while not being boring. It's implacable and it's powerful. And, and most importantly, it's alien. The Cenobites here truly do feel like otherworldly creatures. And without spoiling the ending, their whole world and the dimension that they come from 
is executed brilliantly. Uh, a blink and you'll miss it passage in a book in the film refers to their dimension breaking into ours like the hard lines of the book's design along vertices and angles that mimic the extreme forms of their own world. The light, the lighting in the film changes into fractal geometries like underwater light and it truly does feel like another world is hiding around angles and corners of our own when theirs begins to break through to take someone away. There's one mind-blowing scene where they take someone out of a moving van and it's maybe my favorite dimensional portal I've ever seen. It's fucking terrifying because the movie slowly ramps up the gore as it goes on, letting the first couple of major deaths be off screen so we have to imagine what happened before letting some truly brutal scenes be all up in our face later, starting kind of with that van scene. This movie loves peeling itself some human flesh and you get some truly squirmy moments by the end. And it happens to people you do care about, or at least I cared about them. The, the characters, aside from Riley, are, are, they're not written super deeply, but you get enough of an idea of their basic personalities that they stand out. Uh, the casting of Riley's bad boy boyfriend, I think, is my least favorite of the film. He feels a little too naturally goody-goody to make me believe he's ever had a bad day in his life. He's like a, like a CW version of Tom Hanks playing a hitman in Road to Perdition. I, I couldn't fundamentally believe it. Even if his acting was very in the moment and honest, he's, he's good. He's serviceable. And on all supporting cast, has a generally good script to work with. Nothing flashy, but nothing cringe-inducing either. The plot isn't wildly original, and the twists in it aren't new or even that unexpected, but it shines in the sense that it accomplishes what it needs to with the world it's working with without any frills. The box feels pretentious and, uh, and ominous, the characters are a good blend of fucked up and endearing. The movie starts slow, but it ramps up nicely. And the way that events unfold seem to have more logic than most horror movies, with some minor exceptions. I mean, there are some plot holes, but I didn't find them to be game changers. And I, they could even be explained away if you needed to. And I, I have to admit, I was worried about member berries, too. Sometimes callbacks can be grating. I, I'm looking at you, George Lucas. And sometimes they can be thrilling. I'm looking at you, Avengers Endgame, but they're a tricky business to deal with. I, you, they don't always land the way you intend. And I'm happy to say that Pinhead has only one true callback line, but it makes perfect sense in the moment, and it doesn't feel forced. There are some lovely little nods to other lines and situations, but nothing so spot on that the movie stops and looks us in the eyes and winks. It's a perfect balance, and it feels like this movie can stand on its own while still graciously nodding to its progenitor. Even the Cenobite designs have some callback elements. Uh, Chatterer is back with a sick redesign, as is an updated version of the female Cenobite, who is here and now known as the Gasp, with one particularly cool scene involving a lot of sharp wires. Uh, but ultimately, it's about if this film functioned well as a movie. And I feel it does. I don't know how it will connect with modern audiences or with the core audience that grew up with Hellraiser. Is it too tame for the kids of today? Is it too Disney-fied for the older generation? Which is a criticism I've heard that I truly cannot wrap my head around. I seriously do not know if anyone who watched the same movie that I did thinks this is Disney-fied. How? Uh, and that brings me, actually, that brings me to my final point. What the fuck do people want from a Hellraiser movie if you don't want what you got here? What, what did any other Hellraiser movie do that was better than what Bruckner and company have given you here? I, I spent the entire first half of this review explaining at length what I loved about the Hellraiser franchise and what I didn't. And I openly admitted that I hated more than I loved and still 
It's one of my favorite horror films of all time. And this film here is inarguably the best film in the franchise since the first. And arguably, it's a better movie than the first Hellraiser. I said it. This film has better production values, better acting, a better script. The lore is clearer. The Cenobites feel more like they were originally and best described. When I show people the original Hellraiser, there's a lot I feel like I have to apologize for. There's the Goonie special effects. I mean, they weren't working with a lot of money, so bless them for trying. But uh, Not the resurrection scene, though. That is still an all-time, one of the most incredible horror scenes ever put on film. That's one you show with pride. But there's some other ones that don't quite hold up. Uh, Julia's ridiculous 80s, 80s-ishness. Um, that fucking skeleton dragon. I, I, there's a lot of stuff that I have to kind of be like, now, hold on. <laughs> Come with me on this. If you, didn't, if you weren't raised with it, if you didn't grow up with it, if you didn't have that as part of your horror lexicon, there's stuff in that first movie that can be off-putting, take you out of the, of the moment, take you out of the movie. I don't feel like I have to apologize for a damn thing with this new movie. If you don't like it, it's a matter of opinion, not a matter of fact. There's not as many things to nitpick as here. There's not, there's not as many glaring problems. I feel like they hit a home run. And if you want to complain because it's not out of the park, but still a home run, that's on you. Well, I'm sorry they didn't hit it as far as you wanted to. They did a damn good job. I have lived through sequel after sequel after sequel of Garbage, Truly, some of the worst franchise horror films to ever be shat out into existence. And now, finally, fucking finally, I have another movie in the franchise I can hold up and say, this is good. This is why I love this shit. After all of my trepidation, all of my nervousness, I am so relieved to once again be excited to watch the world of Hellraiser and to have that world give me what I want from it. I wanted unsettling eldritch fear, horrifying yet beautiful and fascinating creatures, a feeling of relentless doom, a sense that the filmmakers had deeper thoughts and meanings behind their decisions, cinematography I could fall into, gore that would make me crawl up on my couch like a chihuahua in a thunderstorm, and God damn it, a pinhead I could mark out for again. And I got it all. Haters be damned. This movie fucking rules. I can't wait to watch it again and again and again and again. I am so fucking happy. (laughs) I am so happy. Way to go, guys. Fantastic, fantastic new Hellraiser. Thank you very much for that. And that ends our very first show of the new season of Horrorpalooza on a happy note. Love to end it this way. Love to go out on a bang watching the new Hellraiser. Definitely check it out. Let me know what you think about it. I have a feeling it will be a controversial take and a controversial movie because uh, a lot of people are going to check this out once word of mouth gets around that it is actually watchable. So let me know what you think over on Twitter at SkinlessWonder or on Instagram at SirIanDangerous. Once again, thank you to Tiki Creeps and 414Beg for helping me out with the show with your music and sound design. And of course, come on back next week. We've got another seven films to talk about. More folk horror Uh, Will I catch up on all of my rules? We'll have to find out. But until then, thank you, everybody, and we will see you next time right here on...